2: Hey, earning and investors, we are doing something different today. I'm switching up the format. Usually on Mondays, I do panels, and then on Thursdays, I do individual solo interviews. I'm going to do a panel again today, which normally it would be a solo interview, and the reason why is we are going to talk about the Redonda Vought case. Now, if you are in medicine or if you are a doctor or nurse, you may understand and have heard about the Redonda Vought case. For the rest of you, this might be news. But this might be one of the most important legal cases of our time. It has broad-ranging effects on not just the practice of medicine, but the financials behind our medical system and whether we will have doctors and nurses to take care of our patients in the future. I really hope you enjoy this. And again, excuse me for breaking format, but I just wanted to get this conversation out as it is happening right now. The... Redonda Vought case just ended about a week and a half ago, and we are now just dealing with the
3: consequences. I'm Nee Darko.
0: I'm Renee Dargo. This is Pauline Osenius. I'm Nisha Mehta, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. Let me point out
2: some undisputed highlights in the Redonda Vought timeline. December 24, 2017, Charlene Murphy, 75, a longtime resident of the Nashville suburb of Gallatin, checks into Vanderbilt Hospital with a subdural hematoma or bleeding in her brain. December 26, 2017, Murphy's condition improves and she's almost ready to leave Vanderbilt. During a final scan in the hospital's radiology department, Murphy is supposed to be given a sedative, Versed, but is accidentally given a dose of Vecuronium, a powerful paralyzing medication. The drug leaves her brain dead. December 27th, 2017, two Vanderbilt neurologists report Murphy's death to the Davidson County Medical Examiner without mentioning the medication error or vecuronium. Murphy's death is attributed to bleeding in her brain and deemed natural. January 2018, in the wake of Murphy's death, Vanderbilt officials take several actions that obscure the fatal medication error from the government and the public. Early 2018, exact date unknown, Vanderbilt negotiates an out-of-court settlement with Murphy's family that requires them not to speak publicly about the death or the medication error. October 3rd, 2018, an anonymous tipster alerts state and federal health officials to the unreported medication error that was responsible for Murphy's death. October 23rd, 2018, the Tennessee Department of Health decides not to pursue disciplinary action against Redonda Vought the nurse in the case. On the same day, Vaught is sent a letter saying this matter did not merit further action. Late November 2018, the circumstances of the fatal medication error become public for the first time when the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services releases an investigation report that details the error without identifying Vaught or Murphy. February 4, 2019, Redonda Vaught is publicly identified for the first time when she is arrested on a criminal indictment for her alleged role in Murphy's death. She is charged with reckless homicide and impaired adult abuse. February 20th, 2019. Vought makes her first appearance in court in her criminal case and enters a not-guilty plea to all charges. March 27th, 2019. In court records, prosecutors reveal far more details about Vaught's case. Investigators allege that Vought made 10 separate errors when giving the wrong medication to Murphy, including overlooking multiple warning signs that she had the wrong medication. Court records state that Vaught would have had to look directly at a warning saying warning a paralyzing agent before injecting the drug. Court documents also say that Vaught admitted her error to investigators. September 27, 2019, the Tennessee Department of Health reverses its prior decision not to pursue professional discipline action against Vaught. July 22, 2021, controversially, Vaught's medical discipline hearing begins before her criminal one. During testimony, Vaught did not shirk responsibility for Murphy's death, saying it is completely my fault that she did not double-check the medicine she provided. July 23, 2021, the Tennessee Board of Nursing revoked Vaught's nursing license. March 21, 2022, Vaught's criminal trial begins with jury selection. March 25, 2022, trial ends with the jury finding Vaught guilty of criminally negligent homicide and abuse of an impaired adult. This decision was notably influenced by statements made by Vaught during her state disciplinary trial in front of the Tennessee Board of Nursing. She's expected to serve between two and six years in prison. Although this legal case has far-reaching economic and financial consequences, sometimes here on Earn and Invest, we step out of the normal conversations of building wealth and financial independence to discuss the greater cultural and societal significance of current events. To do that, I am joined by Pauline Nosenias, who is a nurse anesthetist student, YouTube creator, and a moderator of the popular Facebook group, The Wealthy Nurse. Ni and Renee Darko are physicians, creators, and hosts of the Docs Outside the Box podcast. Nisha Mehta is a radiologist as well as an international keynote speaker, a writer, and a physician advocate who focuses on issues related to life and medicine and the changing healthcare landscape. And Nasima McElroy is a labor and delivery nurse and writer who helps nurse professionals become financially independent. Pauline, Renee, Nee, Nisha, and Nasima, welcome to Earn and Invest. Pauline, I want to start with you. There is a petition out there on change.org, and it has garnered over 100,000 signatures calling for clemency for Redonda Vaught. Why so much public outcry over this case?
4: Yeah. So hi, Jordan all of the nurses, well, most of the nurses that I've seen on Facebook have created such an uproar with this trial. And it was only recently for the past two weeks that all of these posts came out on social media platforms about their frustrations and their anger towards the verdict. And there are mixed reviews. There are nurses also saying that she deserves this. She she killed a patient, but so many nurses felt that she did not deserve prison time. I think that aspect of it is what they are very angry about. They They know she made a mistake. They know that she killed a patient, she caused harm, which is something that us nurses are very passionate about. And we're very vigilant in our care, in our everyday work life, that we swear by our life that we would never cause harm to another patient. So that's why it's so heartbreaking to see another one of our our nurses go through it. I think that was the most monumental moment in the case when she did get criminally charged. I think the days leading up to it was very difficult to watch, and to finally see her get that sentence was what caused that
2: uproar. Nee, I feel like physicians and nurses have been facing the specter of malpractice cases in an ever-increasing fashion over the last few decades. Why does this feel so different?
3: I think so. I'm a physician. I do trauma surgery. So I take care of really sick patients, patients who can die literally in seconds, minutes. And I work hand in hand with critical care nurses. And I think, in some form or fashion, whether you're a physician or if you are a nurse, you can see yourself making this type of mistake, right? Like this stuff happens. There are times when, you know, I'm dealing with a trauma patient and I need to take them to the operating room immediately. They may be drunk. And we may give them a sedative so that we can intubate them, but because they may have alcohol in their system or something else in their system, they chew through that sedative so quickly, and they're trying to get up even though they have a breathing tube in their mouth. And oftentimes we got to say, "Hey, get that vecuronium, which is a paralytic, right?" So, and sometimes they got to run straight to that that uh, machine or whatever. I forget the name Pixus. of the OmniCell or Pixis or whatever it may be. And they have to override it to get that medication, right? And sometimes mistakes are made. Things happen in a very fast, chaotic, sometimes I like to say organized, chaotic type of fashion. And I think whether me from a physician standpoint who's writing orders or doing a procedure or a nurse who's trying to document and see and take care of multiple patients at the same time in some form of fashion, I think we all in this case can see ourselves making a mistake. To this extent, it's hard to say. But also at the same time, we know what's going on with the pandemic. We know what's going on with just in general, you know, nurses, as well as physicians and other healthcare workers seeing more and more patients. There's more of us or more of them than there is us. This is a very, I think everybody, like it just brings out the empathy side of them. And then you throw on top of that, you see that the system in general, the hospital system made a bunch of mistakes, right? They admitted to make a bunch of mistakes. And then she was already, technically kind of already evaluated prosecuted not criminally and then there's this like ability or there's this want to kind of clean up now that it came out in public so at one moment they said they weren't going to do any there weren't going to be any repercussions or there weren't going to be any further investigations and then all of a sudden everything changes without her giving getting a reason so a lot of this stuff didn't make a lot of sense i think that's the number one reason why people are really feeling very strongly about this because they can see themselves making something similar Nasima,
2: I want to get to this idea of systemic versus personal mistakes at some point. But I think right now I want to focus on Redonda Vaught herself. Ni was saying that we can see ourselves making mistakes, right? Things happen. You're moving quickly. These are difficult situations. On the other hand, when we look at the reports with this case, they've marked at least 10 separate errors made by Vaught. I mean, warnings, alarms, reconstituting a a powder when she should have known that Versed was a liquid. Is there a limit to honest mistakes? I mean, is there a point where we look at this and say, okay, yes, people make mistakes, but this went further?
5: You
1: know, I literally saw myself in her shoes. I saw myself at the Pictus overriding that medication. And... I I mean, I I could see like every step of the way when I read that report, I could see where I could have overlooked an alarm because in Epic, when you go to put in an order, there's 50,000 alarms. Like you don't read them anymore because it's like, it's like pages long. You have to scroll through. And yes, I think that she was at fault. But part of being at fault and acknowledging your fault was being able to speak up about it. And I wonder if she hadn't spoke up about it if they would have found out. Because of the systemic problems that Vanderbilt was facing, I'm sure it would be hard for them to trace that med error back. And so what it does for us is it kind of penalizes us for saying, "Okay, I made this mistake and, you know, here are the lessons that can be learned." Yes, you know, our mistakes can be fatal. But to be criminally prosecuted for it is what is really hitting home for us. And yes, we do take responsibility. I have made mad errors that could have been potentially fatal. And so it's just like you want to be able to speak up because you want a root cause analysis to be able to be done so that you can fix the systemic issues. And that's why we encourage people to speak up. But a lot of people are scared right now. And a lot of people want to do the right thing but our skiers are going to go to jail for doing the right thing.
2: Renee, it's an important part because what Nasima is talking about right there is what has been termed the just culture doctrine, right? So back in 1999, there was this report by the Institute of Medicine called To Air as Human, and they found that possibly up to 98,000 patients a year were dying from medical mistakes. And at that time, there was this move towards quote unquote, just culture, this idea that we need to own up to our mistakes so that we can evaluate them and therefore improve on this horrendous number of people who could possibly be dying from medical errors. Tell me what you think this case does to that just cultural
5: doctrine. What doesn't this case do? You know, I think Nasima hit the nail right on the head. And what this does is not only does it discourage individuals in the healthcare system from reporting; it might actually change the entire reporting system for hospitals in general. You know, we, you know, I definitely have encountered hospitals where there might be some sort of an error, something very small, or it could be something big. And before the patient even realizes, or the patient's Family even realizes what's going on. Risk management is on it. They're sending a letter to the patients. They're, you know, making the patients very well aware. And it's, you know, being very transparent, right? And I wonder, especially now, since we've identified, yes, an individual who made a mistake, but we've also I very much identified a healthcare system with massive errors you know, how transparent is even the medical system going to be at this point? Because guess what? They could be next. I think to criminally prosecute this, when clearly, I mean, through everything that you read, Doc, there is not one thing that you read that indicated that this woman had some sort of criminal intent. There was no purposeful action that really, you know, pushed to say, nope, she was definitely trying to harm this patient. I think that's where I think the the criminal charge really is just a slap in the face. When you know we do everything that we can to take care of patients, despite having lots on our plates, so many patients to take care of. Nurses have sometimes fifteen patients to take care of at a time. They're being floated to floors that they don't even necessarily work on. We're assuming that she should know that Versed is a liquid. I will tell you. You know, that's not necessarily true, because if she's not someone who typically even administers Versed, then she may not know that. So, you know, I say all of that to say that I think Nasima is absolutely right. It's going to really discourage people from from reporting, but I think it's going to potentially even change that transparency that we see with hospital systems going forward. You should talk about the difference between negligence and criminal
2: negligence, and specifically, Renee was talking about intent. I, I think we all assumed that intent was where the line was drawn. Has this changed things?
0: I think that that's the dangerous part of this case. I think the precedent is a really alarming precedent for all of us. Everyone that's spoken before me has has you know really demonstrated the personal side of this, which is mistakes happen. All the time. And we know that, right? We, medicine is a science, but it is also an art. And there is also a lot of live things happening in the moment. And and mistakes are always going to be a part of the practice of medicine. I mean, human error is there, as in all professions. But the problem is in medicine, it's different because when you make a mistake, somebody could die. Could that happen in other professions? Maybe. But in medicine, that's a daily basis question, right? And as a physician or as a nurse or as anybody who interacts as as a member of the team you know whether you are an MA whether you are the front desk staff everybody can make a mistake right somebody could input the wrong allergy somebody could take the wrong patient back i mean all lots of things can happen and these are all systemic issues that need to be solved when they do happen and they need to be looked at and if we don't have that system for looking back at these errors and trying to preclude them from happening in the future, we are going to put more and more patients at risk. And so you can't treat a doctor or a nurse or another person who works in healthcare in the same way as you might in another profession, because honestly, people will leave the field, right? If I know as a radiologist that if I am like scrolling a little bit too fast and I miss a bleed on a head CT or I miss a PE, on a PE study and somebody dies, that I could go to jail for that. I'm going to stop reading PE studies and head CTs. I'm sorry. Like, I've come too far and worked too hard at this point in my life to put my family's life at risk like that. And, And at some point, you're going to have people saying, this is not worth it, right? Like, I am trying my best. I am giving my all in a system that is replete with challenges, particularly over the past two years. And if you're going to turn around and tell me that if I have a bad day and I do something wrong, I could go to jail for it there becomes a risk-benefit analysis there that more and more people are going to be calculating. And at a time where we're talking so much about the Great Resignation and all of the issues with shortages in healthcare, to then tell people that there is this precedent of criminal prosecution and potential jail time for actions that were not intended to happen, right? We're not talking Dr. Death here. We are talking like a mistake that no matter how much you could say, I mean, you could think a lot of different things about the circumstances of this case. You can say, hey, this person deserved to lose their license. Or you could say, I mean, everybody's going to feel differently about what the consequences of this could be or should be and exactly how negligent it was. But again, we have systems in place through our medical system, whether it is through our medical boards, whether it's through professional review boards, organizational review boards, morbidity and mortality conferences, all of those systems are in place to hold people accountable. And to make sure that improvements happen, adding the criminal justice system as another layer into that process is going to have longstanding consequences for patient care that are not going to be good. Right. If we are in healthcare, we all want the best health care and outcomes for our families and patients and everything that has been going on over the past few years and that has been expedited by the pandemic. Is actually resulting in an environment that is ripe for medical errors, and we know that, and that is getting worse and worse. And without identification of those errors in a safe way, we lose the ability and the opportunity to identify flaws in the system and prevent those mistakes from happening the next time. We also risk losing more and more healthcare professionals because, like I said, who wants to practice medicine if you can put into jail or put in jail for a non-intentional mistake, right? And I think that that's the thing. Is like, yes, do you have like. Unintentional homicide charges, if like somebody leaves a gun in their house unattended. It, you know, there, there are so many situations where you can say, okay, these people didn't have intent, but they were able to be prosecuted. But I think that the healthcare system actually has to be treated differently in this situation, or you will not have a sustainable healthcare workforce. And that is something that everyone on every level, whether it's our societies, whether it is nationally and legislatively needs to be pointing out in terms of what precedent are we setting and what is the longstanding impact on patient care. And for me, like I'm a policy person. And when I look at this and the impact that it will have on health policy, I do not think that you can allow this precedent to exist because ultimately there are not very many other professions where you regularly would face the, the prospect of going to jail for an error you know, we're in life and death situations every day, no matter what our role is in the healthcare system. And if you practice medicine long enough, at some point you're going to make a mistake. And if you f- start feeling like it's an inevitability that at some point you're going to be prosecuted, you're out. So I-, I just think that accountability is different than, pro- than criminal prosecution. And we have to draw a very, very strong line between those two things.
5: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Nisha, you know, Doc, you talked about, you know, criminal negligence. From my understanding, what criminal negligence entails is that, you know, the individual had to have known that she was taking a specific risk that would put the patient at risk in this case of dying. And I don't think she knew because had she known, I don't think that she would have voluntarily, you know, reported it. You know, it's one thing to know that you're putting someone at risk and then you say, "Well, I'm I'm just going to take the risk that this is going to happen. If something bad happens, I'll just keep quiet and if they catch it, they catch it." But that wasn't the case here. She actually did not know that she was putting the patient at risk. She truly thought that she was taking the steps to to essentially alleviate the patient's anxiety and follow the orders of the physician. Unfortunately, that was not the case and yes, she absolutely had a number of missteps that could potentially have, you know, completely, you know, avoided this situation. But to, to the end of criminal negligence, she was not aware. And that is obvious by the fact that she reported it voluntarily.
3: You know, sometimes I, I look at things as let's just do the converse real quick. Like, what if she had admitted this occurred, but the patient didn't die? Would she still be under criminal, you know, would she still get any type of criminal prosecution? That's the part that's a little scary because there's a ton of errors that occur that people don't die. And you just happen to find it, catch it, report it. And then who makes the decision as, well, this is criminally negligent, even though the patient lived, right? Like these, it just changes the entire landscape for what we do on a daily basis. The other thing too, that I just wanted to highlight also is her speaking up about the mistake that occurred, led to an investigation into the entire system. And they found multiple systemic issues that caused what? Improvement. It caused improvement. So the fact that, you know, people speaking up freely, whether it's anonymous or, you know, were showing their identity, there was an improvement in the system already. And I think that, that this is really scary, particularly people in fields where it's life or death. You know, I can imagine even pilots might be even nervous about this. People in the airline field may be nervous about this also.
4: In nursing school, we were all taught that when we make an error, we have to report it because we want to find out the root causes, what events led to that mistake. And so we can prevent them from happening in the future. And we were taught that since the very beginning. And so we were always taught that we have to be extremely careful in everything we do. And if we do make a mistake, we own up to it so that we can prevent it from happening. And what happened with her is something that can be manageable in another area. Like where I work in the ICUs, if a patient's blood pressure starts going down and keeps going down, we can start interventions, we can start pressers, we can get fluids, and everything can be easily fixed. I mean, we're, us nurses in the ICU, we encounter very near-death issues that we easily fix. Nassima, I find it interesting, as Pauline
2: was talking about the ICU and he was talking about being a trauma surgeon, you know, Negligence feels different in these traumatic situations as compared to what happened with Redonda Vaught. This was a fairly routine procedure. This was not a time-stressed procedure. No one was coding at the moment. Does that change the feel of what happened at all?
1: I want to say it does, but sometimes the stress situation also depends on the staffing. It depends on how familiar you are with the area there are so many different variables. Even when it's not busy, sometimes it can feel busy because of the level of stress you're going through in that environment. People would think that labor and delivery, I don't know why, sometimes people think that labor and delivery is not a stressful environment. We have to override meds all the time and things go to you know hell <laughs> really fast. Even in those non stress environments sometimes were put in a place where we have to do a little bit more critical thinking than, you know, people would think, like, oh, this is a routine, but it was not her routine. She probably never had to go give medications in, you know, CT. She, it, was prob- it was, to me, it seemed like it was a lot of things that were happening that weren't routine to her. She was precepting somebody. She was a relatively new nurse. Why was she even like in that role? And I think, so even though it's not like a critical care environment, stress, we're overriding because it's a code, we have to consider all of the variables in the situation. And I think that even some of those variables aren't pulled out in this report because they're so ingrained in the culture of medicine that sometimes we don't even mention it because I mean, we're like over traumatized, right? So it's just like, you don't remember all those little traumatic things that happen because to us, it might be a normal day that, you know, we're overworked or working outside of our scope or our capacity.
5: And I can definitely speak, you know, to the busyness, right, of your environment being the stressor, being the thing that allows you to potentially, you know, be very open to making a mistake. We mentioned kind of labor and delivery. I mean, if you are on a floor where you're you have young nurses, not young as in age but young in career nurses, it's nighttime when everybody knows everything bad happens at night and that's when hospitals put on their least experienced nurses to train. And then you are understaffed and you have patients coming in and out in and out of the ward. You know, that actually adds to the stress and adds to The ability for medication errors to occur, but that's a systems issue. That is not just an individual issue. I, I I often think sometimes as I'm typing my notes and I, and I have either some crazy outcome or even a good outcome with the patient with whom I'm working, but you know, another, another outcome with another patient who had been sitting there waiting because it was just so busy that night that we just didn't get to it just yet. I often think, you know, If this were to go to litigation, would they look at the entire, would they look at all of the charts, all of the notes? Would they look at all of the times that things were going on during the time that this particular outcome occurred? No, they look at one patient's chart and assume that that was the only thing that you were doing when it was not. And so I think we need to really think about the fact that the system essentially threw this nurse under the bus. The, the system actually improved. The nurse's life absolutely did not, completely deteriorated. The medical board, her, you know, the nursing board decided, okay, well, since you're going to prosecution, now we'll take away your license. You know, I, I just think that it really shows that hospital systems are not necessarily there to care for patients as much as doctors and nurses are. And hospital systems aren't necessarily there to care for doctors and nurses. They're there to, you know, for their own motives, whatever those may be. But I think that's something that we really need to keep in mind, especially as, you know, we continue to put literally our careers in their hands.
0: I So I could not agree more with this need to emphasize the issues with the system, right? Like there is so much that is wrong with our system these days that allows these situations to happen. And there's so much that is perpetuated by all these other players that are in the healthcare space who are not directly engaged in patient care, right? And so what happens, all whether, so healthcare is a huge piece of the GDP, right? It is a huge percent of the GDP. There are a lot of players who want to put their hands into that, into that pot. And because of that, there are increasing directives from above that just get handed down to the healthcare workers. And the healthcare workers have no control over saying this is an unsafe environment. This is something that is going to result in errors. This, They are just told this is the work that you are told to do. And by the way, your livelihood depends on it. We're going to pay you based on this. We're going to cut your reimbursements. We're going to deny payments unless you do X, Y, Z, whatever. And you're given those directives with no input as to whether or not those are reasonable or not. And so mistakes happen because people are overworked. They are overstretched. They are being asked to do things that sometimes don't make sense, which is why people are overriding things all the time. And people become insensitive to it because at the end of the day, we see it as a calling. We see right in front of us patients and we see doctor patient care that needs to be delivered or nurse patient care or whoever else you're in the healthcare system, whatever your role is you see your role as the patient in front of you. And so you do what needs to be done for that patient. However, there are all these things around you that are impacting your ability to do what you do well. And until somebody looks at these cases and says, well, hey, who set up the dangerous conditions to allow this to happen? Not only just the institution, but as a society, what do we allow to be perpetuated in the name of profits over patient care, right? And if we don't take a look at those hard things, that's a big problem. The other thing that I want to say about this is also, you know, another big issue that comes across in relation to all of this is the need for all malpractice considerations for people to be tried by a jury of their peers because only the people that are in those situations every day can really tell you how egregious something really is because they can put themselves in that person's shoes and tell you exactly how bad something was and exactly where pieces fell apart. Right. And to put somebody in front of a jury who doesn't understand that system, who doesn't understand all the things that are going on and have that person be responsible for whether or not that person goes to jail or not is is just setting up a system where at some point, if you have the right trial attorney, they're going to be able to change the wording in a way that is going to make you sound like you are the worst person on the planet, regardless of whether or not you did anything with any ill intent. And if that is how you feel, and I think physicians and nurses and other healthcare workers are so used to just kind of taking the rap for a lot of things that are wrong in the system. Otherwise, right? we're the person that the patient complains to when the bill is too high, even if we only get you know, 2% of that bill is our actual payment, or we're the person that is seen as the face of all of these issues. But we get these, you know, patient satisfaction scores that we have to deal with because somebody got mad at us that we didn't give a medication that was not indicated for them. In general, we're so used to taking that feedback, even if it's not our fault, that we forget to step up against it. And I think this case has really brought everyone together and said, "Hey." As doctors, as nurses, as healthcare workers, this is something you cannot put on us because it is an unreasonable expectation for you to expect that if we make a mistake, we're going to go to jail. It doesn't matter how egregious the situation was. At the end of the day, if we can be penalized in this way for making a mistake... That is a really scary thing for all of us as we think about how we're going to practice care. Who's going to take on care for risky patients? Who's going to take on risky procedures? Those are the questions that the system needs to be asking right now.
3: So I think Nisha, Renee, everybody has brought up some really good points. It's like we're, we're getting knee deep into this now. I think the big key things, there are multiple things, is like the interests of the hospital is not necessarily the interest of the providers, which may also not be the interests of the patients. Right. And we got to be real with this and talk about this. So I just want the audience to understand that when the government was going to not pay the hospital Medicare and Medicaid fees or just Medicare fees. Do y'all know how big of a deal that is? That is such a big deal to the point where you got a huge hospital system such as Vanderbilt to take action quickly. I think I, I can't remember what the timeline was, but in a matter of weeks. They were able to get the ball moving and get rid of all of these errors, or at least show proof that they had a plan to get rid of these errors. And don't forget also, like this type of penalty, refusing to give money to a hospital, was the same strategy that they used in the 60s to get hospitals to desegregate. So I'm gonna tell you, this is a big deal. So, yes, it feels like she got thrown under the bus. Do I feel like, you know, the amount of negligence that occurred? Should go to the fact should go as far as criminal uh, prosecution. No, but I think the fact that she lost her license, I think the fact that you know that she went through all of these different types of evaluations and review, I think that's enough. Particularly with the family saying, you know what, guys, we good. Like we know our mother or we know our relative, and she would be okay with this type of mistake. She would you know forgive and let's move on. And it makes you start to think about like what was the prosecution's motivation. Like, for real, for real, like, what is the prosecution's motivation? I hate to to throw that in, but you just start to get all of these different things in your mind. And I think thrown on top of what everybody else already said, these are the things that make doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers say, hold on, not this case. I got to I got to speak up on this one.
1: Yeah, I think what's important to also realize is that. I think a lot of people are looking at it like if she. If this was a doctor that would have done this, would have gone this far. If it was a male that would have done this, would have gone this far. And then we think like, but police officers do this all the time. And they're in a role to protect and serve. But they get, you know, slap on the hand in their back at work or pension and they get to retire where this woman lost her whole livelihood. She cannot practice as a nurse anymore. And she's basically blackballed her name. Like anywhere she goes, she's going to be blacklisted. And so it just makes you question like the motives. Like Nisha, like, why did they press charges against her? Like, what was the real intent? And so we have to take a deeper look at that.
2: Nisha, you've mentioned this idea that there are already systems in place dealing with medical negligence, that the criminal justice system doesn't have to be yet another layer does it bother you at all that they decided to have the trial for the Tennessee Board of Nursing before the criminal trial and then used some of the information from the Tennessee Board's trial against her in the criminal trial?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it speaks to so much reform that we need in all of these processes, right? Because if you're if you're intent is to improve the system. And that is the reason why these systems are in place, right? They are there not to criminalize people. They They are there to improve the system. And if you can't feel like you can be honest in a situation because it's only going to be used against you later, people are going to stop being honest. And I really think that like You know, as much as everyone else is upset by these cases, I guarantee you there is nobody at all (laughs) that is more upset by this system than the nurse herself or about uh, by the situation than the nurse herself, right? She is getting up every day knowing and having to live with that error. And she doesn't want it to happen again, right? I think we all go into medicine because we feel this calling and this need to help people as much as possible. And when we fail at that, we take that so personally and we want to prevent it from happening again, right? I mean, I don't think you could have a more selfless and like honest professional group of people than you do in healthcare workers. And I know I'm biased, but I truly feel like even when you remove that bias, physicians, and yes, you could name off some other professions as well, where I think you could make that same claim, but but healthcare workers are there with such a noble calling and they really buy into that and they feel it to their roots. So we have these systems in place where we get to say, hey, we messed up, right? And we want to do better. And that's the way that the system has always worked. And that's the way that the system will continue to improve itself. And the minute that you start introducing these layers of, okay, well, let's do a fact-finding mission and then let's use all those facts against us, you know, in a a way that can land us in jail, well, guess what? Nobody's going to participate, right? The nurse is probably not going to stand up and say what she wants to say. And the people who care about her and have seen the good work that she's done are probably also not going to want to throw her under the bus and have her sent to jail. So you're going to end up in these situations where those cover-ups just become worse and worse and more complex and more complex.
4: And speaking from other nurses who voiced out their concerns after this trial, A lot of people I know have said this isn't worth the $30 per hour that we are getting paid as nurses, especially in the East Coast, where it's vastly different from the West Coast, where you have safe staffing ratios. I've worked both East and West Coast, and they are completely different nursing worlds. In the East Coast, you will get three, four patients in the ICU during the COVID surge five to six in the med surge unit, which is completely unsafe, where so many med errors and deaths happened. And it's just insane how nurses are realizing, and a lot of people already left their staff jobs to be travel nurses because they realized that they can be paid way more money for what they're doing, the same thing that they're doing. And so people are saying, should I even become a nurse? Should I even become a CRNA? And I told him, we go through a lot of training and we take all of these steps in our practice to to really master our skills and our knowledge. And we can't let that fear overpower our passion for nursing and helping others. And that's what I, I give my advice. That's the advice I give to those who have those doubts and those fears.
2: I'm going to read you a quote here from Bruce Lambert. He's a patient safety expert and director of the Center for Communication and Health at Northwestern University. I quote, best estimates are seven to 10,000 fatal medication errors occur a year. Are we going to lock them up? Who's going to replace them? If you think Redonda Vought is criminally negligent, you just don't know how healthcare works. Renee, let's say that assuming Redonda Vought does end up going to jail for somewhere between two and six years. Can we ever go back, cross that line? I mean, have we crossed a line that is now going to change the practice
5: of healthcare for eternity? The line has been crossed. There is no going back at least not in this or maybe even the next generation. Maybe the generation afterwards when people forget, you know, when enough people aren't around anymore to remember this. But I think the sentiment will still hold. The fact that a jury, quote unquote, of her peers, could even think that this was criminally negligent is already telling. It it tells us what society thinks is that, like, what they think, they know about what's going on in medicine. And see, unfortunately, that is not going to change. And so today, if it's not Redonda Vaught, it's going to be somebody else later on because the sentiment is still there. The, you know, society has this view of healthcare workers that we're supposed to be perfect. We cannot make a mistake. And if we make a mistake, then we need to pay for that because, you know, unfortunately, somebody else did. But, you know, I think we cannot go back. The question that I ask is how many times are the healthcare workers, the individual healthcare workers, going to take the blame without ever giving any of the blame to the hospital system? In other words, is there ever going to be a time when potentially there's a malpractice suit or even in this case, a criminal suit? Where you finally say, you know what? You know what caused this? What caused this was I was really busy. There were five nurses out. There weren't enough, you know, resources. There wasn't enough PPE. There wasn't enough X, Y, and Z. And this is why, this is what led me down this path to make this error. It is time now for the hospital to get served. It is time now for the hospital. To suffer a consequence beyond just, well, we're going to take your CMS money, which is a big deal. But when are we going to say, yeah, I wasn't the only one at fault here. And now I'm going to essentially sue you, the hospital, for putting me in this situation. When is that going to happen? And I know that's extremely controversial. I know that's extremely controversial. But we all know, and I think we've all said it here. That we have been in situations where it absolutely has been not our fault that something potentially led us down the path of making a medical error. And I think that's that's really something we need to start thinking about.
1: Well, I, I actually have been in that situation where I did sue a hospital because they were putting me in harm's way. And it was very unpopular. And I, they tried to make me seem like I was negligent for recording them. I don't know, but it was, it was very unpopular. It was very frowned upon. And it was a very hard process. And I think that if I wasn't a strong person, I wouldn't be able to deal with that because of all the hoops that I had to jump through. But I think more people need to do that. And I don't, and the only reason why I knew it was possible was because before I was a nurse, I worked in compliance. So I knew what I could do. But a lot of nurses don't know that. And so we have to take the power back because we are the power in the system. We are the workers. We are the numbers, and so we have to shift that power balance and make them understand that we're not to be played with either. That we need to speak up. That we have we have the power to speak up, speak up for them, ourselves, and we can.
0: I think that along the lines of what you're saying and what Renee was saying, one of the biggest things is you know, what point is your empathy used against you, and at what point is your ability to do your job? Because of what it is that you do, compromised by the conditions that you're working in. And at what point do people say, This is enough? I'm not going to partake in the system. And the problem is, is that in healthcare, right? We saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, right? There was no PPE, there were no malpractice protections. And yet we see patients in front of us and we can't not provide care, right? It is like against every fiber of our being. And even if we know we are putting ourselves in harm's way, and even if we know that, you know, whatever care we're giving is suboptimal, we're still going to try our best to give whatever we can give because that's what we do as healthcare workers. And the problem there becomes if you can be put at blame for that. I mean, I remember when we were arguing for protective legislation at the beginning of the pandemic, we got so much pushback about malpractice protections. And one of the things that I kept screaming was kind of, you know, if you tell me as a radiologist that I need to go manage a vent, well, I could try. I mean, I, I have the ability to understand the words and I've been trained and I've worked on an ICU unit, but it's been a really long time. And if you tell me that I can be sued if I make a mistake, well, then I'm not going to volunteer, right? But if you can protect me and I can go in there and make a good faith effort, I will go in there every day, any day of the week. But if you don't give people those protections... They will not do that job. And what you see in other professions is when people have unsafe working conditions, right? If you have, let's say, you know, an Amazon package or a warehouse, and ninety percent of the like staff is gone for whatever reason, you think that ten percent of the staff is, and and the orders are coming in heavier than ever, right? Let's say you're you've increased the number of orders by a, a tenfold, and you've got half of the staff working. Those workers are able to say, hey, we're on strike, we're out, right? And and at the end of the day, the healthcare workers, unless something is incredibly, incredibly dramatic, are most likely not going to say no. And everybody knows that. The government knows that. The organizations know that. The institutions know that. And at that point, you start wondering, well, is my empathy being used against me? Because I can't effectively advocate for myself and for my patients because I don't have the ability to say I'm going to leave or I'm going to quit or I'm going to walk out. But then if a mistake is made in those unsafe working conditions, if you're also going to hold me accountable and potentially put me in jail, well, that for me is the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? That is when I might say, hey, I'm out. And I think a lot of healthcare workers are having that conversation right now and saying, well, if you're going to put me in unsafe conditions and then you're not going to have my back. I've I've got to find something else to do because this is not how I can live my life.
2: I think we could have this conversation for hours, but what we're really doing is we're talking about culpability and negligence. And for whatever reason, we have decided to put all of that on Redonda shoulders. But there are many people who had culpability and negligence who got away pretty easy. Uh, There was Vanderbilt who completely tried to cover this whole thing up and then basically made an economic agreement with the family and had them sign non-disclosures. There was the Tennessee Board of Health, which said there's no problem here, and moved on until they found out that they were going to be in trouble and then reversed themselves. You wonder why we have this kind of conversation here on Earn and Invest, because we're talking about culpability and negligence. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, when we accept these types of things, it becomes us as a society who becomes culpable and negligent. When we do not have the healthcare workers or the manpower or the ability to take care of our sick, it's on us. And so I think if we don't have start having these conversations, if we say it's someone else's fault, if we say it's someone else's responsibility, we're missing a huge chance to... Maybe undo that line in the sand that we all feel has been crossed. I certainly hope we as a society look at this case very, very carefully and decide what we want out of our healthcare workers, our hospitals, and even our systems like CMS and the government and the criminal justice system. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you all what is up next. And where can we find you if we want to learn more? Pauline, let's start with you. What is up next in your life and how can people get in touch with you if they are interested?
4: Yes, so I'm starting CRNA school in one month and you can watch my videos at SRNA Paul on YouTube and I do run a Facebook group along with my partner. It's called The Wealthy Nurse and yes, that's what I am going to be doing. And you can reach me on those platforms.
2: Renee and Nidarko, tell us what is up next with you and where can people find you if they're interested?
3: We are doubling down on our podcast called Docs Outside the Box. Uh, we talk about money, mindset and mission. And sometimes we talk about some of these controversial subjects also. So what is next with us is just doubling down on that. You can find us anywhere at drnedarko.com or Anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, just type in Docs Outside the Box, and that's where we will be
2: at. Nesimo McElroy, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they and tell us what is going on in your life?
1: Oh, I am at Financially Intentional at most places. I am transitioning over into the fintech space. I am a community lead at a bank specifically for nurses, so heavy there. So uh, you can find me at useloom.com and on TikTok at Loom Bank. And I'm just focusing my financially intentional platform on raising my trust fund kids and <laughs> as they are coming into the world and learning that they are rich in their own words.
2: And last, but of course, not least, Nisha Mehta. Tell us what is up next in your life and how can people get in touch with you?
0: Sure. So um, you can find out more about me and my work at www.nishamatamd.com. You know, I'm never really sure what's next. I just kind of go with where things are taking me right now. I have a heavy focus on advocacy and really trying to bring people together in the healthcare space to to make a difference and change the system. and whatever I can do along those lines, whether it's business and financial literacy, whether it's advocacy, whether it's just providing a safe space for people to come together and have these sorts of conversations. That's what I'll be doing.
2: This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Pauline, Ni, Renee, Nasima, and Nisha. That's a wrap. Awesome. There's a lot it, of uh, uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah, lots of lots of ends. <laughs> now that was great. Thank you guys. I, I knew there was no way we could cover everything. Like I knew yeah. that we could only touch the tip of the conversation, but um thought a lot of really, really good stuff came out. Um yeah. and I think it really gave people a feel for what some of the why this is problematic, because I think just the rest of the world doesn't realize how problematic this is.
0: I I don't think people think precedent when they look at cases. And I think that's the big thing that people like have to keep emphasizing when they talk about this case is what is like, you know, the 5000 foot view from this, what's the 10,000 foot view from this? And what's the 30,000 foot view from this? And the 30,000 foot view from this is really, really bad.
2: It's scary. Yeah, Yeah.
0: it's super scary.
2: Because I agree. I think I can't imagine healthcare practitioners are going to want to stay. I mean, after I saw this, I was kind of like, phew, I am so excited that all I really do is part-time hospice work. And I do it really in a much more administrative way.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm glad that I work at the VA, right? When we have mistakes, people sue the VA. They don't sue you as an individual. And I feel like if I had to worry, I mean, I was talking to my husband about this, right? And I was telling him, I was like, at what point do we just say you're not going to do case X, Y, or Z anymore? Because it's just not worth it. Like, I don't want to worry about whether you're ruled as like an involuntary manslaughter because a patient died on your table or because like, I mean, we don't need to anymore, right? Like you're financially independent. Let's just walk away. We're done. You know. And I think that part, that part, (laughs) people are like, I'm out. Like I, I don't need to deal with this. I don't need to be accountable to somebody who doesn't understand what I was going through. I mean, I feel so strongly about the whole like we need to be tried by a jury of our peers thing because this is crazy that like somebody who has no understanding of what the circumstances that led up to this case is and somebody that has no way of being able to understand that is ultimately responsible for putting this person in jail. And, you know, I again, I think you could argue back and forth about whether or not this person should have had their nursing license revoked. but, Above and beyond that, like, we're done. The system has taken care of this problem. What do you vote yes. by putting them in jail? Like, who is being right by this person going to jail? We're not improving the system by them going to jail. We're not, like, improving the lives of the people that she hurt by her going to jail. So, like, it's not even in setting an example. It's not like, ooh, you it's, nurses, you better it's
1: do better.
2: Oh, it's yeah, scapegoating. That was scapegoating. And the sad part, which you guys all brought up, which I think is very true, is her courageousness in talking about this. Has made a huge amount of process improvement. Like a a number of things were brought to light and probably fixed or improved because she's taking the fall.
0: (laughs) I mean, I really. It's just sad. Yeah, I hope the appeals process takes this all the way to wherever it needs to go um, such that it it gets reversed because, I mean, it just feels really.
2: Dangerous line.
0: What are the nurses saying, guys? I mean, like, I, I've got <laughs> nurses are
1: scared. Everybody's trying to leave. Mm-hmm. Nursing students are like, oh, my gosh, should I even go into this field? Like, I'm getting messages every day. People are scared.
0: Yeah, Same. I think that that's the thing that, like, I mean, I hope that that's getting across in all of the social media and whatever, you know, like, I feel like I've posted about this in a few places and people are like, Oh, thank you so much for talking about this because like none of the doctors are talking about this. I'm like, the doctors are talking about it, but I think we do it behind these closed doors and we're just not out there on social media enough. But like I know in our community, I mean, people have been talking about this. Yeah.
2: That's why, that's why I not- wanted to do this too. That that was my other reason again. It's it's not necessarily 100% in my lane, but it is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you guys tell people too, that like the doctors care about this and they feel, they see themselves in this too. And like, I mean, we're a hundred percent with the nursing community on this. So
1: I I feel like nurses do are like kind of like, turning against doctors like well i'm not going to take verbal orders anymore i'm not gonna um if there's an emergency i'm not going to override you go ahead and administer medications there's like backlash like that but i think it's missing the point it's misdirected but those are things that happen when people are scared yeah
0: yeah
5: Yeah. and you
1: you can't protect it.
5: by any means yeah
0: Yeah. um and I think like at some point the doctors are going to say, OK, somebody else override it. You know, like if you're going to I mean, you everybody's going to pass the buck up. What are you going to do? You're going to call an administrator at two o'clock in the morning and tell them to override the bill. Well, yeah. At, yeah,
5: at, that's what happens. That, that, that. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Be on la- Being on labor and delivery where there is often a shortage, I have no problems calling a nurse administrator to come down and do whatever I've had. Yeah. I've called nurse administrators to go find PPE for me because that patient's COVID positive and she's laboring. And I'm not going in there until I have the appropriate gear. So, wherever you are, I don't know if you're sleeping or not, but you need to come down here and you need to bring me some PPE. You know, here's the thing. And I think you mentioned it, doc, um, without even recognizing that you did. You know, you mentioned, you know, Vanderbilt. You mentioned, you know, the Tennessee Board of Health. And then you mentioned Redonda Vaught. The problem is that Redonda Vaught has a name. Everybody else doesn't have a name. Yeah. Yep, yeah. We call everybody else by their system. Yeah. We call everybody else by, you know, the board, their their organization. But this person has a name. And so we can, we can pluck that person from the crowd. But, you know, nobody's suing the CEO of Vanderbilt, which the CEO of Vanderbilt probably should be sued. I mean, yeah. if we're really talking seriously, right? The president of the Tennessee board of whatever probably should be sued. You know, like, I want to sue the DA that actually put the charges. I <laughs> yes. mean, yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, she has a name, and so she's an, she's a very easy target. And you know, it, it's unfortunate, and, and but... she was powerless. Yeah, she had no backing. She was powerless, like she, she had, had the money out of everybody. Yeah, to fight <laughs>
0: you this see that, like across the. Board. I mean, if I look at some of these cases that I've taken so personally, like Hassan Gokal with like the administration of the vaccines when they were expiring and going to be thrown away, and then got like, you know litigated and prosecuted for the, all of these things where you're just like, look at the intent before you start. And like, you know, if you start telling physicians that they can never override protocols in the interest of patient safety and and like public health, what what are you asking us to do? Like, what is our profession exactly? <laughs> right.
5: This is still in a system where, you know, patients always tell tell you like when you give them a diagnosis and you give them a treatment and they go, well, that doesn't work for me. I know my body. I'm like, no, so which is it? Like, are you the standard or are you the exception? Because I don't know what to do anymore. (laughs)